Self, the final frontier. These are the voyages of the starship Therapies. Its continuing mission, to explore strange inner worlds, to seek out new insights and new realizations. To boldly go where no one has gone before. Sir! <gasps> Captain, what's wrong? I can't... I can't breathe. I'll, I'll get someone from the bridge to send down your inhaler. No, it's... It's not that. I feel like... I feel like I'm trapped in a small space with no air. I'm... I'm scared. Oh, sir. Oh, this... Talk about death. What would happen if, if I lost you? I don't. I don't think I could ever come back from that. It's true. You would never be the same. Your life would be irrevocably altered. You're not helping. Well, I'm affirming your feeling. After a great loss, one is never the same. But that doesn't mean that all hope is lost. Let's take a deep breath now and move through this crisis together while we're both still here. Vulcans are truly master healers. Welcome, friends at home. I am Justine Mastin, LMFT, writer, educator, captain of this particular ship. Welcome aboard. And I'm Larissa Garski, LMFT, writer, researcher, Spockian first officer, and I accept that compliment. Just a reminder to listeners at home that just because we are therapists does not mean that we are your therapists. Unless, of course... We happen to be your therapists. This podcast is for the purposes of education and humor and is not intended to replace seeing your own therapist. Now, I've just got to say hats off to you for uh, our opener today. That was really a beautiful and very appropriate segue to chapter eight from The Grieving Therapist, The Realm of Our Crisis. Well, when I think about this chapter, I want to have a panic attack. So... It was. <laughs> That's right, because yes. <laughs> because uh, friends at home, you, I'm certain that you know by now because you, you you must be holding your copy of the Grieving Therapist. You can just yes. Like, flip. At this point, at this you point, are it's there. It. We have many a dog-eared page. You can get to chapter eight, and you can refresh your memory, or perhaps those pros live large in your mind. <laughs> and all you have to do is close your eyes, and you remember that feeling of being trapped inside an enclosed <laughs> space as you crawl out of the volcano from the previous realm, the realm of our faith. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. Fun fact, I believe, no, it definitely was my idea to do that. Like you were, Oh, yes, it was. You were like, uh -huh. we have to get out of the volcano. And I'm like, yeah, sure. And you were like, how are we going to do that? And I was like, don't worry, I've got something. And so, you know, you sat on the other side of the screen and I'm tip-tapping away and you're reading. And then I just start to describe... The experience of like the walls narrowing, you have to bend yeah. over, then you start crawling. And I thought you were going to have to go get your inhaler. You were like, oh my God, I hate this. And I was like, well, you don't have to read it right now if you don't want to. And you were like, good, I won't. <laughs> yeah, I, uh, friends at home, I am rather claustrophobic. 
And I did not know that. Yeah. <laughs> it surprised me not at all to learn it, but I did not know that at the time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I do okay, like, in an MRI, because I am aware that, like, my legs are free, my arms are free, because typically I'm getting an MRI in my head for all of my sure. migraines. That makes sense. Um, and they're like, oh, no, you're not going to freak out, are you? I'm like, no, I'm okay in here, actually. Mm-hmm. Because, like, I know I can get out of here lickety-split if I needed to. It's when you're in a cave (laughs) and your headlamp (laughs) flickers out and you don't know what you're crawling over. Oh, God. Even literally right now. And you hear little skittery sounds and you're like, are these... Right, I could go on, but I won't. That's obviously where the claustrophobia really rears its Uh head. Yes, I am. I am claustrophobic enough that I do not like people standing too close to me, especially behind me. Oh, yes, I definitely have that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I mean, that's that's some trauma stuff, but also that's my claustrophobia because I'm like, I can't get away from you. <laughs> yeah, no, I hear that 110 percent. Yeah. And I've tried to describe this to my partner and he just does not understand. I'm like, please don't stand behind me like that. And he's like, what? <laughs> yeah, no, I think I've definitely, yeah, I've been there when that's happened. And it's like, you've been with this woman for over two decades, but <laughs> some things are just like the first time. Some things are just like the first time. Because <laughs> for folks who don't have any phobias, I think it is hard to describe an emotional feeling that sure. is not like easily understood i mean from a parts perspective and i i can tell i can just like felt like the organic shift that just happened in my system i was like oh well but like what's happening there for that person is that they have a manager or a protective partner maybe both and they're using Mm -hmm. distancing they're using logic Mm -hmm. to distance Mm because they don't want to get close to that big scary feeling yeah that's fair but i don't actually know if that's what your partner is doing. I can just see it being what some people do. Certainly like mm-hmm. I've done that. I've absolutely used logic in that way. Oh my God. So helpful. So helpful <laughs> for me when I was a baby Spock to just be like, oh, mm-hmm. wow, this is a big thing. No, thanks. No, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want your life. <laughs> <laughs> Oh my god! I don't know if you intended that to be a reference to Varsity Blues, Jane, one yeah. James Vanderbeek. Oh my god! Mm-hmm. Just this morning, my partner and I were talking about like the reality that James Vanderbeek really peaked <laughs> in the nineties. In the nineties, we were talking about uh, Timothee Chalamet, and is he going to oh, be? Yeah. Is he going to be like Leonardo DiCaprio, or is he going to be like James Vanderbeek? And then we sat there and we we both actually landed and then we named it out loud um, at a place where we were like, you know, it is kind of a bummer that we we don't have every couple of years the, the new James ba- Vanderbeek picture <laughs> at the Cinemaflexes <laughs> that we could go see. <laughs> yeah, he did a show where he played himself a decade or so ago. I think that's right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I mean, you really you don't you don't hear about the beak anymore. Not so much. I think he and his wife do like influencing with all their children online. And you know what? I hope that he saved all that Dawson's Creek money. Gosh, I hope so. It's so hard when you're young to think about how one day you'll be 45 with bad knees. Yeah. And I mean, 
He's got to be grateful every day that he didn't, I mean, actually, I don't know this about him, that he didn't go down Scientology Road with Katie Holmes. Oh, yeah. Or, I mean, I guess that she was just WB adjacent or like Allison Mack and, and Nexium. Mm, Nexium, yeah. No. no. Mm-hmm. How did we get here? You know, I think that we're doing what we usually do or what we've done many a time is that like we find something that's tangentially related to the realm that we're in <laughs> and then we just go. Uh-huh. And I think that's fine because really the purpose of these episodes is to like give readers, if they would like, sort of an internal view of what our process was like. And this is what our process was like. This is what our process was like. This is exactly like. what our process was like. <laughs> With the exception, I do believe of chapter eight. I think this was a once we once we like we're like, okay, we're we're done talking, mm-hmm. we'll like focus in. Mm-hmm. This was a little bit easier because you and I, well, I won't speak for you. I'll speak for myself. This was a bit easier for me to write because I was like, I know what are the concrete like tools and skills and strategies Mm -hmm. that I want to give to people. Like Mm -hmm. my experience coming up in the field as a baby clinician was like crisis after crisis, after crisis, after crisis, you know? Yeah, it was. Um, Uh It was just like every year my husband and I were going to the hospital because he was having a traumatic lung bleed um, because of his chronic illness. And so like, I just learned how to do all of these things Mm -hmm. because I had to. I just like trained in the realm of our crisis. Yeah, Uh, you you did. Yeah, and I also had several examples. (laughs) Yes, yes, you did. Yes. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah this this was one where I didn't feel like we needed to dig terribly deep. No, I also didn't think that we needed to do a lot of like emotional growing and reflecting and grieving it more felt like I think like, that's what I meant I think yeah. we like got to go back to our own internal libraries and like dust off this tome and be like oh mm-hmm. god remember that remember remember that mm-hmm. um and we remembered all the grieving we did to like get the tools that we yeah. needed and wanted to share in the realm of our crisis but like we weren't building them in real time like we were with mm-hmm. really like literally every other chapter in this book which now that you have that picture in your mind, mm-hmm. that's what I thought writing the whole book was going to be. Sure. That makes a lot more sense as to why you were like, it'll be fine. It'll be chill. Yeah. We're going to pull down these books. We already did this. We're going to read through the books. We're going to write down what's in the books. This is bingo, bango. <laughs> <laughs> you get your Glengarry leads and you're good to go. <laughs> Coffees for closers. And we are two motherfucking closers. (laughs) That actually does really like clarify for me. Like, yeah, that makes sense why Mm -hmm. you thought that. Yes. And that's and that's why I wanted to point to it while you had that feeling fresh in your mind. I appreciate that. Thank you. Yeah. Uh Uh-huh. Cause I truly, I did not think there was going to be all of this pain. Cause I was like, we've already felt it. And I thought it would be like writing this chapter was which was like oh, let me pull down the book from when I uh, had my hysterectomy. Right. And I had to decide what I was going to tell my clients or like when my mother died or Mm -hmm. which like, let's be clear, folks at home. Of course, that was an both of those things were upsetting times. But yes. And you did pull from those tomes. But like, what you didn't know, but I had like a sixth sense about Mm -hmm. Which makes sense because one of the things that my romantic partner likes to reflect to me all the time is he's like, Mm -hmm. you, you like feel something right before the thing happens. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. And then once it happens, you're like, there it was. I'm ready. I can be it. I can be yeah. in it. And he's like, I get there mm-hmm. and I have a panic attack. And I'm like, well, you don't have a panic attack, but yeah, you know. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I've, I very much felt like, oh my God. Or I got like a little, a little taste. Mm-hmm. Um, a moose-bouche, if you will. <laughs> because writing this book, you and I really did change, I think, some pretty fundamental things mm-hmm. about how we practice clinically. Oh, fuck yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And and we also, I think, changed some real core, some some core things about like how we show up as humans, full stop. I did. Yeah. I can name that. Yeah. And that's painful. <laughs> and that's painful. Yeah. <laughs> it's fruitful. It's worthwhile, but painful. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, we are recording this, mm. friends, on the eve of my 44th birthday. That's right. That's right. I, I don't, I don't know if this fits in with crisis or not, but it's where my head is at right now, which is like, I have felt as, as I've noticed this birthday approaching, mm-hmm. um, that I feel like this is a powerful transformational time for me. And mm. I was like, does 44 mean something? And I, um, I looked it up yeah. and does it? I don't, I don't even know what angel numbers are. But, no, but Rachel would. We should ask her when we see her next week. But let, let me look it up again. 44 angel number. It comes right up when I start typing 44. Angel number 44 serves as a message from your angels, reminding you to stay committed and focused. Mm. It signifies financial success, stability, and the creation of a new beginning. Oh. Your angels encourage you to protect your positive energy, maintain self-discipline, and believe in your strength to overcome challenges. But also in Hinduism... <laughs> Okay. Or, oh no, this is the Hindustan Times. What the fuck is the Hindustan Times? The Hindustani Times? I don't know. It's still angel numbers. Never mind. Okay. Please continue. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, number forty-four: spiritual significance. Carries sp- spiritual meanings of strength, self-discipline, balance, positive energy, and achievement. Yeah. Mm. I think this is a time of transformation for me. And what does that have to do with the realm of our crisis? I don't fucking know. It's just where my head was at right now. I mean, if I'm going to do what I usually do, which is like, even when I don't organically have a sense of how to tie it in and spoiler alert, I don't right now. Um, (laughs) I do, I do my darndest. And then we just like, see how that vibes. We see how it feels. So here we go, friends. (laughs) I think that one is not going to have a full transformation in the middle of a crisis. Mm, Yes. Crisis is usually a catalyst. Correct. For transformation. Mm -hmm. Uh-huh. Sort of like with that framing in mind, and we very much like continue that in the literal chapter uh-huh. from the grieving therapist. The I think my invitation, both in the book and here today, is uh-huh. to be protective uh-huh. of your crisis. Mm, say more because it's a time. It, it's a it's a time like you're going through a crucible. What's a crucible? I always think of it like a centrifuge. I'm just like throwing out c words. <laughs> think of a giant cauldron. Oh, that's a fun C word. Where it's like the fire's lit underneath it, and then you get all <laughs> shook up in there. <laughs> and then you get to figure out what kind of soup you're going to become. So friends at home in IFS, there are nine aspects of self, and they all start with C's. And now I would like to change them to crucible, centrifuge, <laughs> cauldron. <Catalyst. laughs> right? But it's like, it's a time where like, 
a lot is going to be happening very, very quickly. And you're going to have the opportunity because a lot is going to be like broken through and shaken out of yourself. You're going to be broken apart. Mm-hmm. That like, then there's going to be, there's going to come the opportunity where you get to like make choices about how to reconstitute yourself. Mm-hmm. So like, I wasn't planning to talk about this today, but, but here I am. So the first time that my, he was my boyfriend at the time, he very quickly became my husband after that. The first time that Mm -hmm. he had a major lung bleed and went to the hospital, that Mm -hmm. was a crisis time. That was a a series of crucible moments where like Mm -hmm. all this whole, this entire vision that I had about like my life and our lives together, like we literally just moved in together. We'd moved in the week prior. Oh, wow. Which was a huge step for both of us. Neither of us had ever done this. We were like, wow, mm-hmm. what is this going to mean? What are we going to be together? And um, he was then in a coma for a whole week. And when the person that you love most in the world is in a coma, if you're me, you just like live at the hospital, even though mm-hmm. you're not supposed to because you're not legally bound to them. Yeah. Or genetically bound to them. But very quickly, the nursing staff was like, I see this person is not leaving. Mm-hmm. <laughs> she's not. She's just going to. OK, OK, uh-huh. well, we can either radically accept that or we can fight with her every day. And eventually everyone radically accepted it. <laughs> they started with fighting every day. They did. And then they were like, wow, we're not going to win. And I was like, no, you're not. this is not a while you were sleeping situation i am partnered with this person that's right i am with this person this is how it is so get good with it Mm -hmm. but so much time just like sitting there and being with this crisis and thinking about like what was important to me in light of this crisis what had once been important to me what mattered not at all anymore Mm-hmm. For me, one of the big things that meant was like, I had all these hangups about marriage because spoiler alert, my parents had a really fraught one mm-hmm. and when I they were married when they were married. And I was mm-hmm. like, and you know, really, can you ever get divorced? Lots of that no. continued. <laughs> That's right. Carl Whitaker would say, fucking, of course not. Fucking, of course not. Fucking, of course that continued. And so I was like, well, I just, I don't, I'm not touching marriage with a 39 and a half foot pole. but sitting there day after day after day the first Mm -hmm. few days having just like fought like tooth and nail to be there Mm -hmm. I was like wow all my stuff about marriage that doesn't matter anymore Mm -hmm. marriage is a construct that can either be helpful or not it really depends on how you use it it's like magic Mm -hmm. and I need to use this magic so that the next time this happens I can make like safe and important and critical decisions Mm -hmm. for my person yeah that's so real like if I hadn't really committed to the crisis and Mm -hmm. said no to everything else in my life Mm -hmm. I don't I don't know that I would have been able to get there in that week's time Mm -hmm. but I really did like give myself over to this crisis I shifted everything around I was like this is the focal point this is the moment and I do want to like take a moment to like really give both of my parents, both my mother and my father, like credit in terms of like modeling this because not every crisis, but there were some key crises in my life growing up where like they very much embodied that phrase when like when your backup is up against the wall, you come correct. Like they really Mm -hmm. crisis could galvanize them. Yeah. And bring out their very best selves. And what that meant for them is like, is if there was like a crisis, like everything stopped and we focused on that and we figured mm-hmm. out like what was the thing we needed to do. 
And so like having that like past that gift from the past, I was like, okay, this fits, mm-hmm. I'm going to do this. Mm-hmm. And then it helped me change my future. Yeah. And if I'd persevered or insisted on homeostasis, mm-hmm. if I tried to like do everything yeah. and minimize the crisis and be like, it'll be fine. It'll be fine. It'll be fine. He's going to wake up. He's going to wake up. He's going to wake up. Mm-hmm. I would have. It would be like, you know, taking the logs off the fire underneath the cauldron. <laughs> <laughs> this is really interesting because as you're talking, I, I was getting uh, images from a part of me reminding me of um, the first time my father was really seriously hospitalized. He was also in a coma for 11 days. Uh, and when we're talking about comas, friends at home, we're talking about drug-induced comas that they put you in. The medical professionals put you in when your body is so, 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 so sick that it will die. Right. They literally come into a room and they're like, so we've exhausted all measures. Uh (laughs) And the only thing we can do is put this person in a medically induced coma on a ventilator. We're intubating Mm -hmm. them. A machine is going to breathe for them. They're hooked up to heart monitors. Mm -hmm. And I remember when they first said that to me the first time around, I was like, and then what happens? And they're like, we wait. (laughs) Right. And, I was and like, then we see. I was like, how long do we wait? And they're like, we wait and see. Uh-huh. And then they just sort of left. <laughs> that is what they do. That's what they do. They're like, well, we've dropped this thing. We're not trained in emotional holding. <laughs> this is not trauma-informed care. <laughs> no, they're basically like, listen, there's literally nothing else that could go wrong. with, And this person lives. So... We need to pause them. (laughs) Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And maybe that'll help. (laughs) We need to pause the game. Right, right. (laughs) Force an unexpected reboot. And then I was like, okay, when are we going to reboot? Tomorrow? And they're like, well, we just don't know. Yeah, no. It sounds like for Brian, it was seven days. For Mm -hmm. my father, it was 11 days. Yeah, yeah. You just sit there and they come back in and they poke at some things and they're like, well, still, still pause today. Yeah, still, what we're still not happy with what we're seeing. That's no, right. thank you. No, thanks. Um, but like that experience really helped me learn how to do crisis. Mm. So I feel like I, um, while I was always a tiny grown up. Oh, you were. I was. I was a tiny grown up. But like I didn't have excellent crisis management skills other than like. Uh, by that point, I had been a caterer. Right. So, like, you knew how to deal with, what, what would that be, like, logistic crises? Yeah. logistical. You know, that mm-hmm. were not, that you didn't have, like, a strong emotional stake in. Mm-hmm. Like, it's a pain in the ass if, like, the cheesecake didn't come or it got mm-hmm. smushed or whatever. Like, that's going to be yeah. a problem. We're not going to make a good tip. Maybe we're going to make no mm-hmm. tip. Yeah. Those are real problems. But it's not, like, the same emotional valency as, like, they're putting my dad on pause. Right. And yeah, I mean, I could hold emotional stuff of like, this mother of the bride is mad at me. Right. And I'm like, yes, I feel that and that feels bad. And I don't mm-hmm. like that. Mm-hmm. But also at the end of the day, the literal worst thing that's going to happen right. is I'm going to get a mean letter <laughs> or my boss is going to be like, yo, don't do that again. You know? Right, right. <laughs> Nancy's mom was pretty pissed when yeah. you rolled your eyes at her. <laughs> Which I would never do. No, no, no. Um, 
And actually, by that point, I had moved upstairs to the um, to being the assistant catering manager. Oh, okay. So or, like you're the, the manager's assistant. So I okay. wasn't whatever. Anyway, I was wearing polyester suits with big shoulder pads. It was 2000. It was the year 2000. Yeah. Um, it was a lot like Party Down. If anyone's familiar with that show, it was your party down. And like, you were a professional. Mm -hmm. You knew how to like, think under pressure, think and make decisions under pressure. Mm -hmm. With a very specific niche thing. Yes. Right. But I was now being handed something completely outside of my comfort zone. They weren't handing you a catering emergency. They were not. They were handing me an emotional yeah. emergency. And I mean, to pass to me's credit, I was just like, I'm taking a leave of absence. I'm out. Yep. Well done. Good job, Pastor Justine. You know, I am going to the hospital because my father is in a hospital two hours away from my hometown. Mm-hmm. And I was like, I'm just going. Yeah. I don't know when I'll be back because we had a lot of privilege. And I've talked about my father's status. I mean, he still had status two hours away. So like my sister and I get got put up in the university housing and they fed us and all this stuff. But, like, I lived there. I yeah. used to look stuff up in the uh, medical library. Oh. Like, I was really trying to understand what was going on. God, I remember doing that, too. You know? Mm-hmm. And uh, I think part of, and this is on topic, friends, if you're like, how is this related other than Justine telling this sad story? Um, when we're trying to be with crisis, sometimes we're trying to solve it. Yes. When there's nothing to solve. That's right. You know, because sometimes they won't let you keep sitting there. They right. will be like, you need to leave. It's true. It's true. <laughs> and it's like, okay, well, I can go back to the university housing and eat a bagel with strawberry cream cheese. I still very, very, like, vividly remember mm-hmm. doing that. Yeah. Because they'd stocked our fridge with uh, flavored cream cheeses and bagels. And I was like, I guess this is what I eat now when I'm not in the (laughs) hospital. Yeah. Um, I remember I would go down to the hospital cafeteria mm -hmm. on like the bottom basement floor. Yeah. It's always in the basement. It's always just the sad, like just when I think of a place that personifies sadness, it is... (laughs) It is the cafeteria of a major university hospital. And my favorite thing to get was this like salad thing. Mm-hmm. McDonald's used to have it. I don't believe they have it anymore. It was something they came up with in like the mid 90s, maybe the late mm-hmm. 1990s. It was yeah. like a shaker. The shaker. Yeah. And I would always get the shaker and I would I would bring it back up to the room. And poor Brian is hooked up to all the machines and I'm just mm-hmm. shaking my salad. <laughs> shaking it away. oh my god i would always get some kind of like pasta thing Mm -hmm. it's like i didn't want to eat it's really hard to like want to eat yes and i was like i like pasta i'll eat this and then i would just like stare at it and poke at it with a fork (laughs) was your hospital cold all the time always oh so cold oh my God. god and we'd uh we'd packed up to go in such a hurry yeah. This is when I lived in my, my bachelorette pad. Um, and I'd packed so fast that he. this is lack of crisis management, right? For sure. myself. Yeah. Like now, 
if there were a crisis, I could pack the shit out of a bag and know what I need. Oh, God, me too. I knew it would be done 10 minutes tops. Yes. But I was like, I don't know what I need. I don't know how long I'm going to be gone. I don't oh my know. God, that's so true. Anything. Yeah. And mm-hmm. I was so not present that I, I had no yeah. awareness of like what I had packed. And when I, <laughs> when I went to unpack, I was like, this is nothing but shirts. <laughs> <laughs> nothing but shirts oh my god that's so great just shirts no pants no pants no i don't think there was even underwear in there oh god no sweaters so the first thing we did like after we you know not the dad was stable yeah Yeah, Yeah. but like he's there they've Mm -hmm. done what they're doing now we wait was go to fucking Walmart and buy some sweatpants. Jesus. And like a fleece zip up vest. I had those for years. They're very warm. Um, I remember my mom once, because Brian was at one hospital and then mm-hmm. they need they sent him to the big university one in, in Minnesota because yeah. it had all the accoutrement. Mm-hmm. So it was probably like the second or third day we were there. My mom was like I was just like shivering constantly. And she took, mm-hmm. I think she took me to North, the Mall of America. And I got oh, these like, oh my God. these like Ugg slippers. Uh, those would be great for the hospital. They were so great. And they were sort of like moccasin styled. And so yeah. like, I would just like shuffle. I had, I, I would usually wear like four layers. Yep. Uh-huh. Cause at that point, I also, I'm gonna, what is it, a trigger warning, I guess, friends? Yeah. It's about body mm-hmm. stuff. At that point, I had an undiagnosed eating disorder that actually was never diagnosed until I got over it. And then years later, <laughs> a therapist was like, do you think maybe? And I was like, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Not I probably. Think, definitely. I think definitely. <laughs> so, like, I was so cold because I had no body fat. And so I had, like, all these different layers that I would put on with my little, like, moccasin slippers. And I would just, like, shuffle down. <laughs> the, the little ICU hallway. And occasionally someone would be like, ma'am, are you supposed to be here? Are you supposed to? Or no, I, they wouldn't call me ma'am. It was miss back then because I was still so young. Miss, are you supposed to be there? And I would be like, yes. Or sometimes I wouldn't, I wouldn't acknowledge. I would just yeah. keep shuffling. Keep shuffling. Yeah. Oh, God. I was, um, this story that I'm telling, at this time I was 21. And I have always looked, not always. Um, when I was quite young, I looked older than my age. And then somewhere around age 17, I just like stopped aging. Yeah, for a good while. For a good while. In fact, just the other day, someone at the gym thought I was in my late 20s. Not bragging. Just a thing that happened. That's right. Um, (laughs) Unprompted, unbidden. (laughs) Um, But one time I was there without anybody else. My sister was with me a lot of the time. Um, But it was just me in my dad's hospital room. And I've asked this doctor who came in many times. It's like not the main doctor. It's the, you know. It's some intern, someone who's working on like their fifth, sixth, seventh year of fellowship. Yeah. Yeah. But this happened to be like the doctor. Yeah. And I was like, how's he doing? And the doctor said, are you 18? (laughs) Oh, sure. And I was like, yeah, I am. (laughs) 
Because I guess not only do you have to be a family member, you need to be 18 for them to tell you how the patient's doing. I guess that makes sense because like really they want to make sure that they have at least one like family member localized who can make decisions for the unconscious. Mm -hmm. Right. Because if it turned out I was 17, Mm -hmm. be like, "Uh, I'm not going to tell you how he's doing because I might need you to like sign something and you can't sign anything. No, you're a minor. You can't eat. In some states, you can't even sign for yourself. (laughs) Uh, But, you know, the crisis continues, right? Like when uh, we were waiting and waiting and waiting for dad to be ready to come out of that coma. Yeah. And I know that Brian has a similar story. Um, When fun facts, folks at home, if you had never heard of this, Mm -hmm. when you put someone in a drug-induced coma for many, many days, Mm -hmm. those drugs don't just like clear your system immediately. Like, no, when you... (laughs) No. When you watch a soap opera and someone just opens their eyes and they're like, mother, father, I'm all better. Chad, Melissa. (laughs) And then they reach out their arms. That's not how it works. No, that's not how it works. For my father, he woke up um, and thought he was still in a dream. He was hallucinating. They called this... um, ICU delirium. Or ICU psychosis. Yes. Mm -hmm. Um, And... Uh, I blamed myself because not oh. for his psychosis, but for what his what his hallucinations were. Oh, he he kept seeing B fifty twos, the bombers, not the band. Okay, I and was like, wow, the band. Were you listening to the song when you were visiting no. it? No, okay, okay. No, he thought we he thought it was World War Two, and I was like, oh my god, this is my fault because the nurses kept turning on like sports and shit, but like hockey. Oh. My dad didn't like hockey, so I kept changing the TV back to the history channel because he loved the history channel oh sure <laughs> so, yeah. he'd been, so he'd been mainlining you know hitler documentaries for 11 days um yeah. and he and he thought he was in the war for a week at least oh jeez. And the doctors kept being like, he's better. And we're like, um, but what about the fact that he thinks he's in World War II? And they were like, was he not like that before? We're like, no. Yeah. No, dude, dude could do all of the, Mm -hmm. what day is it? What time? He was oriented times four. Yeah. Before. Right, right. (laughs) We would have put fully oriented on his chart. Yeah. And so, you know, we had waited for this moment of him waking up right. and then he wakes up and he's and, in the war and he's in the war. And the I'm going to put a trigger warning on this one just because it's really fucking sad. And mm-hmm. if you have made it this far, but you're like, I can't handle any one more sad thing than one than more sad don't. thing. Put us on pause. Yeah. Um, but I, you know, once he was awake and like was doing OK, like I went home to my Mm home um two hours away to like take a break right he started talking and so they called me so that he could talk to me yeah and he said that he thought i had died a long time ago he thought we had all died in the war wow and that was so awful and painful yeah and back to our central thesis crisis is not a moment no no, which is why, and we talk about this in the book, 
When you find that you are in a personal state of crisis as a clinician, because I mean, it's called the grieving therapist. It's really about like when this is happening for you and you're also a clinician, what do you Mm -hmm. do? Our strong recommendation is that when you find yourself in a state of crisis and you are somehow like still like maybe you find out the crisis is happening while you're at work. Mm-hmm. Whatever that looks like for you, a literal yeah. office out in the community, in your home office about to start virtual therapy, mm-hmm. you need to immediately tie off mm-hmm. all of your clinical duties so that you can go be present for your crisis. Yeah. Because the reality is that it is impossible to do both. Mm-hmm. And even if you are able to somehow be present for your clients, you will be doing damage to you. Yeah. And it matters. That you're doing damage to you. It does, because you're important too, friends. And this is true not just for therapists. It's true of any person Mm -hmm. who is working when they find out that they're in the beginning of a crisis journey. Yes. Just leave. And if you can't leave, then I think the next radical thing is to give yourself permission to show up less. Mm-hmm. You know, yep. like if you usually show up with 100%, no, that's not. <laughs> we had no. this conversation the other day. We did. We did. Where it was like a very bad day for me because uh, my cat Katsu was like really going through something. Mm-hmm. And I was like, I have, what did I tell you? I have like 20% left. And mm-hmm. that means that I'm going to be able to give 7% <laughs> to each client. Mm-hmm. And I tell you this because there would have been a time when a younger version of me would have been horrified. Oh, yes. And would have been certain that this meant that I was like a very bad, very negligent clinician. Mm-hmm. And a bad person. And a bad person. Mm-hmm. A bad person whose name was not, was going to be X'd out of the book of life. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> you know, like Yom Kippur was going to be rough for you. It was going to be a rough time for me. Maybe forever. <laughs> And now I realize that, like, if I were, like, in that instance to try to offer more than that, mm-hmm. I, would be hurting, I would be hurting myself and I would be modeling for my clients that self-sacrifice and self-harm is okay. And that this kind of martyrdom is self-harm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it took me, wow, it took me such a long time to wrap my mind around that. Mm-hmm. Because self-sacrifice is a legacy burden on both sides, on all <laughs> sides of my family tree. It's, it's a spruce <laughs> at, at 360 degrees. <laughs> yes. All branches say, That's sacrifice right. yourself. That's right. Put yourself dead ass last. <laughs> oh, God. And I did for so many years. Mm-hmm. So many years. Yeah. Yeah. And, I, you know, we've gotten feedback from folks who read the book that got to that part when mm-hmm. we talk about, you know, self-sacrifice as self-harm, where they were like, oh, that like cut me like a knife. That hurt right. to read. Like that was painful to read. And you're right. Yeah. And I'm realizing there's a part of me that wants to explain, like, what does that mean? That example I gave that I had like 7% energy for like each session that day. Mm -hmm. What it meant was that like, I knew that I could still be fully solidly in self. 
Mm-hmm. It could continue to be that beacon of light, which, yeah. and like, this is very helpful that IFS very much has this framework that like, if you can rock into self. Mm-hmm. That's, that is the most important thing. Mm-hmm. And so I'm in self with 7% energy. What does that mean? That means for me that my beautiful archivist part mm-hmm. will not be Johnny on the spot at her desk. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I will have to be like, can you remind me, client, what the name of that person is? Because mm-hmm. I can yeah. remember their vibe, but my archivist is not home today. Um, I didn't say that out loud as explicitly. It just didn't make clinical sense. But like, mm-hmm. that's what I mean that like, I knew that I could go into self and that with that 7%, there was just going to be a limit in terms of all like the fine tuned, detailed scroll work. Mm-hmm. that I love to do as a clinician. And I'm finally at a place where I could radically accept that. Now, on the other side of it, when it's the start of a crisis journey, I'm not going to be rock solid in self. So like mm-hmm. when I found out what was happening for Katsu or what we thought was happening for Katsu, I was like, mm-hmm. well, and now we're done today. <laughs> right. Because I can't offer anything. Right. And that's the difference. And that's mm-hmm. what, you know, when I talk to my supervisees, and they're like, well, should I cancel people? How do I know? And I'm like, well, can you baseline? Right. Can you hold a compassionate container for another human? Like, yeah. not can you do fancy interventions? Mm-mm. Not Mm-mm. like, can you remember all of your theory? Right. You know, like, can you baseline? Can you recite the alphabet backwards? No. No. Like, can you be present? Mm-hmm. Hold compassionate space. Yeah. And I've I've named that for clients before. Oh, like yeah. if, again, this is not crisis, but, you know, if you're someone at home who, like my supervisees, is like, but how do I know? Mm-hmm. Like, when is an illness a crisis? Well, how sick are you? I like to ask myself a few simple questions. Mm-hmm. Am I able to engage all of my core sensory faculties? Can I mm-hmm. see? Can mm-hmm. I smell? Can I hear? Can I stand, i.e. touch the ground without falling over? Mm-hmm. What, does, what do things taste like? If one or more of my five senses are out of commission, mm-hmm. that's a strong indication that it might be time to cancel the day. Hmm. I, I, I'm sitting with that and I'm yeah. thinking, I, smell, I mean, I've definitely worked with a stuffy nose. Well, that's why it's like, it, it's a sign that like, we need to take a closer look at this. Okay, sure. Yeah. It doesn't necessarily mean for sure not. Cause like, yeah, in the middle of like hay fever season, no one's yeah. smelling through their nose, but I can still <laughs> hold compassionate <laughs> clinical space. Hell, my archivist part's definitely even still online. She's just got a lot of tissues inside. Mm-hmm. Um, but like the, and the reason this works so well for me is cause I have yeah. cr- like, we both have chronic yeah. severe migraines and mm-hmm. I often get auras. Right. You do. Yeah. And there were a few times in my clinical internship where I would try to do sessions, even though. Oh, fuck. I was having auras. And, you know, my recollection at the time when I and I was in a very different place. So I want to like be clear mm-hmm. that I may not have like ac- fully like accurately represented what was happening for me physically to sure. my practicum supervisor. But mm-hmm. my recollection is that like the feedback was like, well, if you can kind of see you're fine. <laughs> and i've since passed back yeah that yeah, particular yeah. 
therapy message. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I, before I started getting migraines, I, um, I worked in a, in an agency in an intensive outpatient program. Mm -hmm. And one of my coworkers got severe migraines. Yeah. And I just, I remember when he would get them and he would say, I need to go lay down in the records room. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I was like, okay. (laughs) Uh, I was like, what, I, what do you, you know, basically what do you need? Mm -hmm. He's like, well, I don't know if this is going to calm down. Yeah. You know, I I have taken my Rizitriptan and I'm going to go lay right. down in the records room and we'll see. That's right. Because sometimes Rizitriptan is enough. Sometimes your body is on a partial pause. Uh-huh. And, you know, as someone who did not get migraines, I was like, well, I don't, I don't understand this, like from a experience level, but you are in pain and you need to go lay down. So please go do that. Right. Take care of you. Yeah. Take care of you. We, we're already overworked coworker. You going to lay down is not making things worse. No, it's not helping with the ratios. (laughs) No. (laughs) Those are already in the toilet. (laughs) This is already a nightmare. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So if you need to go lay down, please do that. And I say that because sometimes we think to ourselves like, oh, no. Right. But if I go lay down in the records room, mm-hmm. undue responsibility will fall to my coworkers. And friends, God, here's what I would like me. to say. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What would you like to say? I would like to say undue responsibility is already falling to your coworkers because you work in a sick system. <laughs> Probably. <laughs> if that's your concern. I feel like often this perspective comes from me and I'm like, we already live in late stage capitalist society. Everything's on fire. It's already bad. The question is, can you make it less bad for someone? And is that someone you? But you did it today. So good job. I did it today because I'm really very much on my big old high horse about particularly systems of oppression in the therapy world right now. Totally. And I watch my my supervisees who are just like these beautiful little artists who are being asked to work in this system where it's like, okay, little artists, now it's time to build a rocket. Mm -hmm. And they're like, I didn't want to build a rocket. Too bad. Slugger. (laughs) (laughs) Strap in. Right? Like, I don't know how to build a rocket. I don't like, I didn't want, I... If one of your little artist friends yeah. is like, I have a migraine, like, yeah, buddy, go. go. Step away from the mines. <laughs> well, and along those same lines, I think it's so important to be, it's a discerning, maybe it's discerning. I think it's really important to like cultivate all the C words today. Yeah. Cultivate. A community of support. Mm-hmm. Because chances are that that wasn't something that like you fully grew up with. Maybe listener listeners at home, some of you did. And to that, I say, wow, that's a, a, an amazing gift. Mm-hmm. And any incredulity you're, you're sensing from me is that it's just, it simply is just that rare. It's just envy. That's what and that probably a little bit of envy. Yeah. 
Yeah, that's probably true. Um, but like as adults, really cultivating community that you trust that can be with you as you're like sorting through the thorniness of not just being in crisis, but like how to show up around crisis, mm-hmm. how to care for clients, how to care for yourself. There are, I mean, there's no shortage of um, like folks in this field who will tell you to just like strap in and strap down and just like keep going. Mm-hmm. Build a fucking rocket. <laughs> and that's just not our vibe. And so we would invite you that like if you're hearing this and you're like, wow, it's not my vibe either, that like find mm-hmm. find other community that can yeah. be with you in that. Because um, speaking for myself, I mean, I, I, I found that community um, and it, I had to be with it for, it was probably like 10 years, realistically, mm. before I started to really fully mm-hmm. embody this practice of self-sacrifice is doing harm. Mm-hmm. I don't want to do harm. What do I do? Yeah. Including to myself. Yes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which... I mean, it, friends at home, if you've ever done a meta meditation, mm. which is all about is the meditation of loving kindness. Yes. It's always and including ourselves. Right. We are sending out loving kindness to those we know, those we don't know, those we those we know and love, those we know who challenge us and including ourselves. Um. And it's interesting that I'm bringing this up today because actually I did a group supervision on Sunday and I led them in a meta meditation before we started. Oh, I love that. Mm-hmm. We didn't go through the whole thing because meta meditation could be very long. Very long, very detailed. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We, we just did um, for ourselves, ourselves and the group. Yeah, mm-hmm. I love that. Sometimes I think there's like a lot to be appreciated in a focused meta Mm-hmm. Right? Because you can go, like, start with yourself and go all the way out to, like, infinity, or you can start with the infinite and come all the way in. I've done those. I have, too. I'll never forget one time I did this years ago with a client, and they were like, oh, wow. And I was like, is that too much? And they were like, too much. <laughs> and too I was, like, I was like, okay, great. Let's just let's zoom back in. Here we go. We're, Here we're back we go. in. Here yeah. we go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I I guess I feel like this is this is in the air right now. Yeah. It totally is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Is I mean tomorrow's Thanksgiving, which American Thanksgiving has a lot of problems. Um yeah, like historic yeah. problems. Yeah. Um mm-hmm. and I look at it as an opportunity to not praise war criminals, um, but rather <laughs> to use this as an opportunity as a time of gratitude for a gratitude practice. Well, because like all modern holidays, it has its original roots in paganism. Sure. Yes. So you can just like go all the way back. To the mm-hmm. original root of paganism. And, you know, I would advise let go of any of like, the sacrifice stuff. And just be with this is a I mean, time. people of, do kill turkeys. I know. And that's why I'm like, let go of that too. Yeah. Um, 
you know, think of, think of all the living ones and how you can be thoughtful and kind to each of them <laughs> and celebrate the bringing in of the harvest. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, what have you cultivated? We're getting to the end of, of the year. What have you, mm-hmm. well, I guess like oh, the when Christian calendar. Yeah. So we're getting mm-hmm. to the end of like that calendar and we're certainly getting to the end of the harvest season. So really thinking mm-hmm. about what have you cultivated? What have you grown? What are you mm-hmm. grateful to have? What are maybe some like things that you planted six to eight months ago that like never really took root how might we acknowledge and honor those, make space for grief around that, and then come together with those we trust and care for? Mm-hmm. I love that. And, you know, folks at home, we know you're hearing this long after Thanksgiving, yes, but the true. invitation is still there. Right. And um, and if you I, love this episode, you can bookmark it and listen to it next you year. Can, you can listen to it every Thanksgiving. Oh, Larissa and Justine here with you every Thanksgiving. That's right. You're going to sit down at your table and listen to our crises. <laughs> <laughs> and then watch over the garden wall, which is what I'm planning to do on my Thanksgiving evening. Oh, I love that. I should do that as well. Yeah. During, uh, during an IFS, well, it wasn't an IFS session. I had a meeting with my IFS consultant mm-hmm. where I, I, I dropped in to check in on a part. Yeah. And something that part really wanted was uh, to tell me to watch over the garden wall as a way to like honor the season. Potatoes and molasses. Potatoes and molasses. It's very vegan friendly. <laughs> Actually, I've never I just I just realized that is a very vegan forward dish. <laughs> just don't add butter. And no. why would you need to? There's molasses. Yeah, potatoes and molasses. If you can't see them, put on your glasses. <laughs> oh, do you want to virtually watch over the garden wall together tomorrow night? Yes, I totally do. We can we can talk about it off air. We can figure that out. And indeed we shall. All right. I think it's time to take us out. We had a nice long chat today. We did. We sure did. Who knew we had so much to say about crisis? We did. We may be at the helm of this ship, but we know who really keeps us running. Thank you to Lieutenant Catherine Mandicat Duthie, who designed our beautiful cover art. Thank you to Lieutenant Kyle Rebar, who is our fabulous producer. And finally, thank you to Executive Producer Lieutenant Commander Brian Therens. We are so truly grateful that you moved through all of your crises and are still with us. Be sure to follow us on Instagram. And if you would care to subscribe, rate and review us on Apple Podcasts so that people find our back catalog, that would be a delight. And please do purchase our books and give them as gifts to your friends. Read them, gift them. Uh, That is Starship Therapies, using therapeutic fan fiction to rewrite your life. And The Grieving Therapist, caring for yourself and your clients when it feels like the end of the world. And support your favorite booksellers. Order yourself a copy, a book, a two, a three. You could also get them in audio format. Do you love the sound of your captain's voice? Your captain can read The Grieving Therapist to you for 10 hours. 10 hours of these dulcet tones. Get a physical copy, an audio copy, (laughs) a digital copy. And as always, friends, live long and prosper. prosper.